Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Let's pray together. We give thanks to our Father for the mothers and fathers who have gone before us historically, who have prepared a old path for us to walk upon. We ask, Lord, keep us on that path insofar as it follows Christ. We pray, Lord, that you'd bless our lesson tonight. Teach us as a church. Build us up in knowledge, wisdom, but also, Lord, in the graces of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading at verse 21, and then also if you want to turn to the back of the hymnal to page 931, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then if you look at page 931, chapter 20 of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, uh, 
page 931, chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. Section 1, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, and from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communications of the free Spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. Section 2. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are, in anything, contrary to his word, or beside it, if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Section 3. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And then finally, section four, and because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, shall oppose any lawful power or the exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature, or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ, Christ hath established in the church. They may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church." So tonight we want to talk about Christian liberty and also uh, the liberty of conscience that we have in these four sections. So in section number one, the Westminster Divines talk to us about what exactly is liberty in Jesus Christ. Now they state this in 15 points. Ten of the first 15 points are stated in the negative 
And then the latter five are stated positively. That is, to put it this way, Christian liberty uh, delivers you from ten negative things, and it brings five blessings. Okay, so what are these that they list here? First of all, let's talk about the things that Christ delivers us from. All right, so that is, when you boys and girls believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, in the moment you believe, he helps you and delivers you in these 10 areas. We'll talk about these 10 first, and then we'll talk about the five additional blessings positively. So first of all, these uh, 10 negative. Number one, freedom from guilt of sin. By nature, you and I are under the, the wrath and condemnation of God because of sin. That is what God in his holiness demands, that we should be uh, subject to punishment. We are guilty not only uh, you know, of actual transgressions that we commit, but we are guilty of the sin in Adam. That is, we were, we were born guilty uh, from the very beginning, and, and, and we are under the wrath and condemnation of God in Adam. Now, from that comes the actual transgressions. That is, the daily sins you and I add to the sins of being in Adam. When Jesus Christ <coughs> excuse me, is believed upon, you are delivered instantly from that guilt, that condemnation. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. All that guilt was placed objectively on Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago, and the full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ for those sins and for that guilt. Thereby, God cannot punish you in Christ and punish Christ. So therefore, he having punished Christ, you are free from the guilt that is ours in, in the first Adam. That's number one. Number two, just as you have freedom from the guilt of sin, number two, you have freedom from the wrath of God. Now, this is important. A lot of Christians don't realize that they are free from the wrath of God as a judge. Now, God may paternally become displeased with you uh, if you transgress his holy ordinances and commandments, but you are never, as a believer in Jesus Christ, under the judgment, the, the judicial wrath of God. Does that make sense? That has been satisfied in, in Christ. You are dealt with now as sons and daughters in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, but you, you are um, not under the judicial wrath of God any longer. I think a lot of Christians don't realize uh, that they they live under this vague sense of disapproval uh, that it can be very paralyzing to a believer. So one of the things you need to realize is is the liberty you have in Jesus Christ is that that you uh, are looked upon um, as one who is in union with Jesus Christ, and therefore you have the same favor judicially in the sight of God as Jesus does. Um, now, there, again, there, there, we can talk about the issue of sanctification and 
um, you know, God dealing with us, with us as a father deals with his children. But we're speaking here judicially here. So I got to keep moving. Number three, you are also delivered from the curse of the law. Okay, the law no longer condemns. We sing a hymn here in this church where we sing that line, and the law asks no more. And the law asks no more. What does that little phrase mean in that hymn that we sing? Well, what it means is that Jesus Christ, by his active obedience, has fulfilled all the requirements of the law for you. And so the law does not ask any more of you in terms of your standing before God. So the curse has been satisfied. Why is the curse satisfied? Because Christ became a curse. The New Testament makes it clear. Paul says that cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. And he's saying this is what happened to Jesus. Jesus was crucified on a, on a tree, you could say, boys and girls, by being put on a wooden cross. Um, he was placed upon that tree, and there he hung. And he was put under the, the wrath and curse of God. Number four, you're delivered from uh, the evil, the dominion of evil in the world. Before you knew Jesus Christ, you were a slave to this world and to Satan. But in Jesus Christ, that dominion to this world, to Satan, and to sin is broken. Now, we still struggle with the world and its temptations. We still struggle with the attacks of the evil one. You still struggle with indwelling sin. You still deal with those three enemies, but you are not under its dominion. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit provides a way of escape with every temptation, we are told. So we have these blessings and power from God through Jesus Christ. Jesus breaks the dominion. So that's kind of four, five, and six that the Westminster Divines list. And then uh, we are delivered uh, from the... the uh, delivered from the evil of these afflictions, and they say the sting of death. Now, that doesn't mean you're not um, delivered from death itself. We still, even in Christ, we die in the Lord. But notice here, they say the sting of death. And they quote, you know, of course, here the proof text of Paul, O death, where is thy sting? Meaning that the, 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 the curse has uh, the sting of that curse has been removed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Even though we die, our body is still united to the resurrected body of Christ. And thereby, as we saw this morning, our body is going to be raised with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also you are delivered from the grave's victory. And you are delivered from damnation. So those ten things are given to you freely in Jesus Christ. Now, add to that your five blessings that you have when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Number one, the Westminster Divines add is this, access to God. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 7, you have an anchor that is within the veil. You have a high priest who is on the other side of the veil. That is, he is in heaven and if you think of heaven as having this, this veil between heaven and earth, Christ is in heaven. He's your high priest. Now you come boldly to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have this free, full access to God. 
The second blessing that you have is you, uh, you have the grace of obedience to God. That is, God gives you His Spirit and gives you the ability now to freely, from the heart, obey God. You also have freedom from the ceremonial law, they say. Thirdly, blessing. You have boldness to the throne of grace and fuller communications of the Spirit. Now, they make a note here. They say that Old Testament believers also had the Spirit of God, but they did not have the, the fullness of the Spirit in the way that we do on this side of Jesus Christ. There is one covenant of grace that moves from the Old Testament to the New, but your blessings are greater than the blessings that even Moses. And you say, oh, no way, Pastor. I got you there. Moses got to go in the tent and speak to God face to face. Moses had a shining face. No, trust me on this one. You have greater blessings in Jesus Christ now than Moses. If Moses could choose between what he had and what you have, he'd choose what you have. You have greater access to God. You have greater fullness of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would indeed uh, fall upon the prophets of old. Okay? But they did not have the Spirit of God poured out uh, upon us in such power and blessing as we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus put it this way. He said this reality he, he demonstrated was uh, in this example. He said the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, he said there's nobody in the Old Covenant born of women that was as great as John the Baptist. But he said that the, the poorest, the weakest, the wobbliest of saints in the New Covenant are greater than John the Baptist. They're not inherently greater, but what he is saying is what? That the privileges of the believer in Jesus Christ are far greater. We have far greater liberty in the Spirit than even the prophets who had the Holy Spirit, who spoke by the Holy Spirit, who uttered things by the Holy Spirit had. So it is, it is, a, it is a greater privilege that we have than even Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and the rest. So that is the first paragraph that they deal with in, the, in their section on the liberty of Christ. Now in the second section, they move to the liberty of conscience here. And the first thing that they want you to know is this, that, that it is God alone who is Lord of the conscience. Now what is a conscience, boys and girls? Let's talk about that first because some of the young kids may not know what is a conscience. The conscience is kind of that inner voice that God puts within everyone who is a human being. It's not just given to Christians. Non-Christians also have this uh, inner voice. Some Puritans compared it to the inner ear that gives you, you know, if you've ever had a serious ear problem, you know that one of the effects of that is you lose your balance. It's, it, it, it's very difficult uh, for you to balance when you've got an inner ear issue going on. The conscience kind of serves like that inner ear. It gives you a sense of, of balance, right, wrong, right, wrong. In Christ, um, God, well, even 
I would say even for the non-Christian, God is Lord of the conscience. Now, he is recognized, obviously, as Lord of the conscience um, as a believer. But the Westminster Divines say, upon that principle are these two sub-points. Number one, it frees you in Jesus Christ from the doctrines and the commandments of men. When God is the Lord of your conscience, it frees you from uh, the doctrines and the commandments of men. Um, you think about, you know, a marriage. And I know a lot of feminists today, they, they react negatively against the, the Christian view of the husband being the head and the wife submitting to the husband. But really, it's a great blessing for the woman to submit to the husband. Why? Because then she doesn't have to submit to a bunch of men. You know, she doesn't have to submit to a, a, a tyranny of men. Um, by submitting to one, she's free, you know, in, in, a, in a much broader sense. It's a, great, it's a great blessing. So with the Christian, when we submit to Christ, it, it frees us uh, from the commandments and the doctrines of others. And so when people exhort us and saying, well, you should really do this, and we think within ourselves, you know, I'm walking a godly life and I'm living, you know, before the Lord. And no, I don't, I just don't, I just, you know, I don't agree. And, you know, the, the, isn't it interesting in a culture that often rejects Jesus Christ, they are never short of, of the hortatory, are they? They're always telling us what it is that we have to do or not do. Um, you know, it's not as though, you know, that, that if you're a non-religious person or a non-Christian um, that, that the laws and the commandments cease. And in fact, in many ways, they multiply. And, uh, and what happens is that um, when you come to Christ, you, you become free from that. that the, those things kind of just slough off your back um, when somebody tries to weigh you down with, well, you should do, you know, X. And you think, well, why, you know? I'm not, the Bible doesn't say I have to, um, you know. So that's the first sub-point there. Because the Lord is Lord of the conscience, you're free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Um, this can be a very, a very valuable in the church, too. Um, you know, we, we have churches out there that are saying, you can't eat meat on Friday. You know, I grew up in Atlanta, and, and uh, you know, if you grow up in a large metropolitan area, the the school system will always provide a fish alternative on Friday for lunch. Why do they do that? Well, because you know Catholics say you're going to go to hell if you eat meat on Friday. Um, and, and so as a Christian, you say, where does the Lord say that? You're, you're free from that. You can eat meat on Friday. You can have pizza with sausage on it on Friday. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church says, if you want to go in the ministry, you better not marry. You know, you can't marry, all right? Well, where is that in the Bible? I mean, Peter had a mother-in-law. <laughs> she got healed by Jesus. <laughs> I don't know how you get a mother-in-law without getting married. but uh, So um, you, have, you have the Roman Catholic Church saying, well, you know, you, we need to pray to saints, and you need to say, Hail Mary, full of grace. You know, well, Why? 
Where is that? That's not in the Bible. Or the Mormons, they say you, gotta have, you need to have the Book of Mormon added to you. Uh, so there are all kinds of religious groups out there that are telling you, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. There are men who call themselves modern-day apostles and prophets, and so they get a, quote, word from the Lord. And what they say that's supposed to be binding on everybody under that apostle's leadership. And that, that can put you in some very dangerous situations. I can remember when I began my ministry in the 90s. Um, a lot of weight, some of you middle-aged parents may remember these days, you know, a lot of weight being put on parents' consciences. Growing kids God's way. You remember that one? <laughs> you, better, you better do, you know, ABC here. Uh, remember the other one? You know, kissing, dating, goodbye. You know, you better not be dating. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and look where that got him. He kissed Jesus goodbye, like Judas, you know. The guy who wrote that book is no longer a Christian. So that shows you what, what these things get you, you know. Uh, doesn't, doesn't make you more sanctified, doesn't, you know. And, and so, uh, but when you, when you come to know Jesus Christ, you know, he's the one who is Lord of your conscience. Not these gurus out there who are writing books and telling you do this and exhorting you don't do that and this is the way you got to do it. You know, if you're really going to be holy, you know, you must follow, you know, this principle. If it's something that is outside, you know, something from the Apostle Paul, it's probably coming from men. You have fundamentalist uh, denominations that are saying you can't drink this, you can't wear this makeup, you know, they put all these rules and regulations adding to it. What is all this? These are nothing but the doctrines of men. And we in Christ are free from that. If, especially if all, all that which is contrary to the word. Secondly, not only does the liberty of conscience free you from these kinds of doctrines and commandments of men, but secondly, it, it, it frees you to worship God in spirit and truth. Now it also helps you because now you know that you are not supposed to add anything to the worship of God, that God has not explicitly commanded us. You see, the, the uh, regulative principle of worship, I think, gets a lot of bad press. Oh, it's so stringent, it's so strict. No, it's actually more liberty is found in the regulative principle of worship, I would argue, than the normative principle of worship, which is what most evangelicals believe. Because when you have the normative principle of worship rather than the regular principle of worship, well, then you start adding all these things because, well, you can't find it in, against Scripture saying this. And so you, add, you start introducing all kinds of stuff. I had a, a woman many years ago um, tell me that she went to go visit a family member in a huge, mega evangelical church far away in another state. You don't know it. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was an Easter uh, Sunday. And, you know, the guy gets up to the microphone and goes, Who's alive? And these balloons and pool noodles and confetti and all this stuff comes just flowing out over the balcony. And people are, you know, hitting the beach balls in the air. And, and the woman was distraught. Um, is this really the way God is to be honored? Is this the way we, we honor the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, if you hold to the normative principle of worship, then there's nothing wrong with that. 
And that's, that's not liberty. So, um, Jesus is Lord of the conscience. That's point number two. Now, we can err on this side, you know, like any good road. You can run off to the right side of the road, and you can run off the ro- left side of the road. <laughs> you know, the boys and girls, there's two ways to fall off the road while you're driving, okay, as you'll learn when you get your learners. Um, and now, in the section three, what the Westminster Divines do is they caution us about not running then on the other side off, off the road. And that is, their third point is this, that Christian liberty does not equal license, licentiousness. Christian liberty should not lead to licentiousness. That is, our liberty in Jesus Christ is not a cover for sinning. It, it, we are to obey God, meaning we do need to keep his commandments. We can never say as a Christian, well, I'm free in Christ. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm justified. So I'm just going to go ahead and sin because God will have to forgive me. We can never make that argument. If we make that argument, we need to check our foundation to, say, to see whether we really do have real faith in Christ. Because it's very questionable that somebody who lives that way really has a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So that Christian liberty is never to be a cover for evil. Uh, we are to use our Christian liberty, but we are to be careful about it, that it not lead ourselves or our brethren into sin. We need to be, take care to see to it that our liberty in Jesus Christ does not cause someone else to stumble. And you read about that, in, for example, in Corinthians you can understand this, this would have been a huge issue for the early church. You have a mixture in the first century, Jews and Gentiles coming together. And you can understand how a Jewish believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, still his conscience still might be bound to not eating pork. Okay, In that it, it might still feel like a sin to him if, if he was to partake. And as a Gentile believer you would not want to wound his conscience by saying, here, just eat this. Uh, because they may eat it and feel like they're sinning. And, and what did Paul say? That which is not of faith is sin. And so if they think it's sin, it is sin for them. Um, and so you have to be careful with your Christian liberty uh, that you, you not cause others uh, for whom maybe they got converted you know, late in life, they, they lived a pretty wild life and they come to Christ. They may not want to drink alcohol. They might not want to have anything to do with alcohol. It might be for them sin. They might feel like I'm sinning if, if I was to go back and, and taste alcohol again. And, and we, we need to, you know, respect that and, and say, you know, I understand um, so it, our, our liberty has to be handled with maturity and care. Young people tend not to handle their Christian liberty with wisdom. So young people, be wise in your Christian liberty. Oftentimes, young people like to flaunt their liberty. You know, Look at me on Facebook here. I'm smoking this huge stogie, and I got a scotch in my hand, and the rest of you, ha, you know, you, you fundy Baptist, you know. And, you know, that's not probably what you should be doing, okay, with your Christian liberty, all right? 
um, is saying, nana, 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 you donations who, you know, don't do this. Look at me. Um, that, that is probably not a wise use of your Christian liberty. All right, let me move on. We've got to close here, the, the final section. Um, Christian liberty cannot also be a pretext for civil or ecclesiastical rebellion against lawful authority. Um, that is, to put it another way, the, the, the kingdom of Christ is not, and I want you to hear me here, is not revolutionary in one sense. Now, of course, it is, you, you could use that word revolutionary in some sense, but what I mean is this, it is not revolutionary in that everywhere it goes, um, the civil authorities are overthrown. Okay, what did Paul say in Romans 13 to the, the church? He said, look, we should, as a matter of conscience, to God, where the rubber meets the road, with respect to the civil magistrates, we should honor the civil magistrate, pay our taxes, we should pray for them, pray for the kings and all in authority, and we should obey everything that is lawful to obey. That's the norm. Now, yes, I know many of you good Americans out there, you're thinking, well, but what, pastor, what about? Yes, I know the whatabouts. But the ordinary course for us is obedience to, to the civil magistrate. Um, the, the, the Westminster divines were so strong on this, they, they actually say that those who rebel against lawful authority are subject to church discipline. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had that here over the years. You know, we've had young people who have been arrested and then disciplined by our session. In one case, it, it resulted in, in great good. Um, the, the young person, you know, repented and uh, was brought back into the church. He's serving as an officer in a Reformed Presbyterian church in another state. So uh, this, you know, can be, you know, Calvin put it this way in the Institutes. I've been reading a lot of the Institutes lately. Um, Calvin said, you know, that the state and the church are, are to be of mutual help to each other. Um, we do our job as a church by giving the civil magistrate less to do, <laughs> meaning we're to be promoting Christian living in, in such a way that it makes the job of the police officer easier. Uh, hopefully we give them fewer cases um, but they can be of a help to us, and because if 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 uh, self control isn't working and family control doesn't work and 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 ecclesiastical control isn't working, a lot of times the the, la the last weapon in God's arsenal is the state, and often in the providence of God they'll get in trouble with the state and they'll bring this correction. And so I always try to, you know, when I talk with. Officers, you know, try to encourage them and tell them how much we appreciate, you know, their work because their work has been in the past an aid, you know, to our work as a church, and um, and I think it's it's important that we uh, let them let them know that um, churches do need to discipline when when there is civil disobedience. Many years ago, when I was serving in another church, we had a deacon who embezzled from his company. Uh, tragically, and he was caught uh, for that and, and was arrested. He was convicted, you know, and, and uh, he came as his own accuser, uh, thankfully, to the, to the session. 
So there, there was not a, any resistance to the ecclesiastical authority. He admitted his crime. Uh, he did have to serve uh, some time. But, um, but even though he, he uh, you know, does that and he's repentant for it, he still is subject to the discipline of the state. That is, repenting from that does not thereby, you know, absolve you of the punishment uh, that you need to serve for the state. Um, he did undergo uh, the discipline. He was restored by the church and later released and, and was a productive member of, of church and, and the community after that. But um, these things uh, are taken seriously uh, by the Westminster divines here, and, and I think the church needs to uphold uh, these standards. So let me stop there. Uh, we'll pray. Uh, maybe you have questions uh, afterward.